which you'll find in Romans chapter 9 this morning, coming to the next installment of our survey of the book of Romans. Uh, Chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, let us hear and attend to the word of God. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have a great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, My countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel, who are of Israel. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scripture there this morning. Please be seated. Surveying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, close attention should be given to the development and progression of the theological reasoning about God's covenantal order and operation for His righteous judgment and salvation of the world as Creator God and as Savior God. By revealing... The universal application of the moral law in relationship between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And that's what we've spent several weeks looking at in the various sections and survey of the book of Romans. Now in the eternal and secret counsel of the Holy Trinity, according to the good pleasure of God's will, the one and only way of justification from the consequences of original and actual sin in all time for all people is redemption by the eternal covenant of grace fulfilled in the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've been repeating this thesis of the Apostle Paul from chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 every week. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Therefore, natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace without the special revelation of the new covenant gospel fulfilling the covenant of grace. And we note the Apostle Paul's use of the Old Testament scriptures. If you want an exciting study, give yourself to studying the book of Romans and looking at the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and how Paul applies them and explains them in terms of God's saving purpose and the the promise of the gospel. And then, of course, think about this. Where would we be if we didn't have the New Testament scriptures? Think about that. It's really a challenging um, effect upon us to think where we would be and what the the, the first century uh, New Covenant believers were experiencing and how the Word of God, as it was being given by inspiration, through the infallibility of the apostles and the other writers of Scripture that were born along by the Holy Spirit, and as they would receive the application from the very mind of of God, given that they might know and, and, and have revealed to them all the wonderful promises of God that are yes and so be it in Jesus in the new covenant. So we continue on this morning. Uh, remembering that we're looking at this survey of the book of Romans by key verses. And the key verses referenced 
uh, for this complete study in each installment that we've given are offered in support of concise expositional doctrinal statements and the verses in between the key verses give explanations and illustrations that are intended to connect and confirm the theme that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace. And so I keep encouraging you and saying from each time, like this morning, I hope that you spent time reading chapters 9 through 11 this week because the in-between verses give explanation and illustration. We'll we'll give some reference and some uh, 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 demonstration of that as we go through, but there's so much there. And so if you take the key verses and then you look at how the uh, in-between verses explain and, and illustrate the main theme of the, of the key verses, it's really enriching. Now here in the letter to the Romans, I want you to, to also take note that key words are used by comparison contrast, representing groups of people inclusive of the whole world in relationship to God's covenantal order and operation of both the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And we've seen that that contrast that's been going on, what Paul's been dealing with in terms of the application of the moral law of God from the covenant of works, and then the fulfillment uh, of that moral law of God through the covenant of grace. And it's really important. And so this morning, because of what we're going to get into in chapters 9 through 11, I want you to see that in the broader context, Paul has been using this comparison contrast between Jews and Israelites It's very interesting that he he, uh, makes a transition in chapter 9 through 11 using the term Israelite mostly. But he's been talking about Jews and Israelites in comparison and contrast with Greeks and Gentiles. And then also he's been making this comparison contrast between the circumcised or circumcision and that comparison contrast with not circumcised or uh, uncircumcision. And he's been developing this theme, and you can see various um, passages that deal with that. Uh, this morning in chapter 9, we read verses 1 through 6, Paul talking about his own, own heart's broken desire for his own people. After that, He identifies after the flesh with the people who have come through Old Covenant Judaism. It is significant that Paul identifies himself in chapter 9 as an Israelite because he had left Judaism. You know the story of the Apostle Paul. You know how he was zealous for Judaism. But then having been confronted with the Lord Jesus Christ and having been dragged, kicking and screaming (laughs) to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he identifies himself in chapter 9 as an Israelite, one who has come to recognize and to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, and embrace the new covenant fulfillment of God's covenant promises for salvation. So that's a significant example there. But then if you look back at chapter 1, look at how the Apostle Paul starts out this this book, this letter. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now he's, he's bound to Christ. He's Christ's slave and servant, acknowledging and recognizing that he is the Messiah, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. This gospel that he's talking about, that he's excited about, preaching the gospel and being unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does he say it is? It's the gospel of God. It's God's good news. It's revealed to us through Jesus who is God. I hope you picked up on that when we were reading it in chapter 9. Jesus who is God. It's God's gospel. Verse 2, which he promised before through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, the Apostle Paul accepts the inspiration and infallibility 
and the inerrant keeping of the Word of God in the Testament of, of the Old Testament Scriptures. And he says they, the prophets spoke by God. And that's why it's significant to look at how he interprets and uses Old Testament Scripture in uh, uh, recognizing the fulfillment of the new covenant gospel in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Here he's talking about again God's uh, order and purpose in history providentially where Jesus was born and came through the line of David. And so in that respect, we know that Jesus was born into Judaism. Jesus came from that lineage and heritage. And Paul talks about what benefit that was externally. He's going to talk more about that in chapters 9 through 11. Verse 4, And declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And that, that leads Paul to say that we are justified by Christ's resurrection. Verse 5, Through Him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. My translation says all nations. Perhaps your translation says all Gentiles. It's the same word. It's rooted in the ethnos, the ethnic peoples of the world. For his name, verse 6, among whom also you are the called of Jesus Christ. All the called out ones, Jews and Gentiles, Israelites and Greeks, the nations, the peoples of the world. And so chapters 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with this very testy question. You may be familiar with the disputes in chapters 9 through 11. I think sometimes we jump to some of those most disputed things and we miss the bigger picture and the connection, particularly in the development of the, the uh, theme and the reasoning of the Apostle Paul theologically that brings us to chapters 9 through 11. So the Apostle Paul, Paul's point is that the external effects of the moral law of the covenant of works witnessed by creation to Gentiles, peoples outside of uh, the heritage of the Old Covenant, test, uh, the Testament of the Old Covenants, Judaism. So the effects, the external effects of the moral law from the covenant of works witnessed by creation to Gentiles, Paul's made that argument, and Old Testament administration given to Jews, he's made that argument, cannot inwardly change the unrighteous and the unregenerate heart without the supernatural operation of the covenant of grace, specially promised and previewed by the covenants of the Old Testament being accomplished and applied by Christ Jesus' New Testament. Whereby, now pay attention to this, God's visiting gift salvation within the external Old Testament people, not everybody who was under the Old Covenant within that uh, aggregate nation, not everyone was regenerated. There was an outward election of the nation, but within that nation of people, there were those whom God had elected to gift salvation. So, God's visiting gift salvation within the external Old Testament people, and God also extending gift salvation to people outside of the visible Old Testament people and its covenants. And we know that that's recorded for us in Scripture. Most notably, we have Gentiles who were in the, line, the, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus himself. But we know of the record, uh, probably Jonah and Nineveh is one of the most uh, uh, astounding 
And this theme is represented to us in the Old Testament in terms of the Old Testament covenants. God extended his gift salvation to those who were outside of the Old Covenant nation. And within the Old Covenant nation, God brought his gift salvation to those within the nation, but it was not coextensive with every individual who was a part of Old Covenant Israel or in Judaism. Now, this is the challenge, that in doing this, God is not compromising, violating, or failing. But he is fulfilling his original intention. That's how it's important for us to see this and put the pieces together. Uh, The Apostle Paul anticipates these objections, and he answers objections that God is unfair, or that God failed, or that God uh, changed his mind, or that God is, you know, fickle. And all of these uh, anticipations and objections, Paul answers them from the scriptures and he tells us that this was God's original intention I mean just look back a few verses in chapter 8 we often reference these verses on an individual level but I don't think we keep them in the context in terms of God's covenantal purpose verse 28 of chapter 8 for we know that all things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose and so this call if you go back to chapter 1 It's not just to Old Covenant Judaism. It's not just to Jews. Paul's argument is for Jews and Greeks. For everyone. For all who believe. The ones who are called. And he goes on in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his Son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We're very familiar with those verses. Oftentimes we kind of limit them to verse 28 about, you know, God working out all things for good to those who love him. But the basis of our loving him is that he loved us first. And so Paul elaborates on what has been called the order of salvation. And so now in chapter 9, he's picking up with this very question. How it is that God is not compromising, violating, or failing but rather, he is fulfilling his original intention in terms of salvation. So here in chapter nine, chapters 9 through 11, after the falling away from God's fellowship into spiritual death by original sin affecting all humanity, Paul has made that point clearly up, up to this uh, chapter, particularly in chapters 1 through 3. So after the falling away from God's fellowship into spiritual death by original sin affecting all humanity, God reveals that his plan of redemption includes the secret decree of divine election. And this is what really sets people off. And they miss the the forest by trying to look at the individual trees and try to explain away what is obvious to us that God is God and salvation is of the Lord. And so God reveals that his plan of redemption includes the secret decree of divine election. So there has always been only one way of salvation promised and variously witnessed during the Old Testament and ultimately fulfilled by Jesus' New Testament. And this uh, statement comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is not a new teaching. This is a standard, uh, solid biblical teaching that has been the claim of the faithful uh, to the gospel across the generations. 
And this is a statement from the Westminster Confession. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance between Old Covenant and New Covenant, between Old Testament and New Testament, but one and the same under various dispensations, or so you're not confused, we would say covenantal administrations. But one covenant of grace for salvation. In contrast to the covenant of works for judgment and accountability. So we look at key verses this morning uh, in chapters 9 uh, through 11. We start out with verses 6 through 8 of chapter 9. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of... Those who are... I'm sorry, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Now Paul has already developed that theme, uh, or at least uh, seeded that thought elsewhere. What is Paul saying here? That the word of God, witnessing to salvation, is made effectual. It's not without effect. It's made effectual according to God's sovereign purposes, so that the true Israel are those who are not born of the flesh, but born again of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we cannot miss this. It's much disputed. There are those who have all kinds of um, ideas and attempts to explain away or to out, flat out deny God's doctrine of election. And chiefly it's done by repeatedly saying, oh, the Jews are God's chosen people in aggregate, in mass. It's just the Jews, whoever is Jew. How do you determine who a Jew is today? I mean, Judaism is a religion. It's not a nationality. That's one of the issues about Paul dealing with Israelites, those who are of the nation of Israel. Uh, Semitic people trace their lineage back to Seth, uh, or to Shem, rather, uh, of the sons of Noah. And so it gets very confusing and convoluted. And that's why we need to pay attention to what Paul is saying here. And so the word of God, witnessing to salvation, is made effectual according to God's covenant promises regarding the true Israel. There are those not who are born of the flesh, but rather those who are born again of the Spirit. Uh, to show you that Paul had already introduced this idea, turn back to chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Paul says here, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the Spirit, not in the letter. Those who pray, uh, whose praise is not from men, but from God. So Paul has already suggested this idea using that kind of terminology that he's going to further clarify for us as he goes particularly here in chapters 9 through 11. And so he's not saying that we adopt Judaism. No, he's saying, no, it's an issue of the heart. And what was it all about? It was never about the externals. The externals were preparatory. The externals were uh, uh, intended to show the way, to preview. They were never an end in themselves. Never intended by God for that. So the word of God is not useless. It's not as if the word of God has not taken effect. It's not as if God has compromised, violated, or failed in his promises. Because the true Israel of God are those who are not born of the flesh, but those who are born again of the Spirit. Our next section of uh, key verses is chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. For the children... Not yet being born. Now you know he's talking about uh, Jacob and Esau here. For the children not yet being born. 
So Paul is elaborating and taking up if the promise of the, uh, the promised son Isaac was not enough in referencing and illustrating God's sovereign election and purpose. If that story of, of uh, Isaac's miraculous birth of, from God and as a uh, preview and as a uh, type of God's son, the son of promise, if that's not enough to convince you of God's election, then how about Jacob and Esau? Because the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. That's what many people say. Many people say that the biblical doctrine of God's election makes God unfair or unjust. Who are we to tell God what he's supposed to be? That's the point that the Apostle Paul is going to further elaborate. But here in verses 11 through 14, God is not unjust or unrighteous in his sovereign prerogatives of election, which are not conditioned by birth or any other human abilities or circumstances of external relationship to the moral law by creation, by creation ordinances, or covenantal privileges. <clears throat> so for no one is God's electing purpose conditioned upon their birth or their circumstances or any other relationship to the moral law of God, either by um, creation ordinances or by uh, covenantal privileges. And who, who does Paul give his examples here? Abraham? What, what was God's choice of Abraham? Was there anything in Abraham in the circumstances of his birth? He was a pagan, according to all outward uh, circumstances. But God called him. And then his son Isaac, the son of promise, as a preview and type of God's son of promise. What about Jacob and Esau within the covenant community, within the old covenant privileges? They all received those external privileges together as children. Grew up in the same household. But there were no circumstances of birth or even external privileges of the old covenant externally that could change their heart. It was by God's secret work according to his purpose in election. And then we can go outside of the external covenant because he brings forward Moses and Pharaoh. And we, we consider what Paul says about God having raised up Pharaoh, that he might show his power and his purpose and election through him. But remember that Moses was raised in Pharaoh's house? Do you remember that? Moses and, and, and the, the future Pharaoh wrote, uh, lived together. They were raised together. But God chose Moses, and God used Moses. And so it was not according to Moses' birth, even though he was born within the covenant. He wasn't raised within the covenant. He was raised in a pagan palace. But God providentially had prepared for him to be nurtured by his own family and a wonderful providence of God. You know the story. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's amazing. But here Paul brings forward these examples to tell us that God's prerogatives in election 
are not based upon any conditions of birth or outward circumstances in external relationship to the moral law of God by creation ordinances or by the covenantal privileges. So it's important for us to see his line of of thought there and where he's going with it. That brings us to the next section, verses 19 through 24 in chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? That is, you know, God can't be satisfied. Why does God still find fault? I mean, this is just uh, something that is forced and it's irresistible. For who has resisted his will? God is just an impersonal force of faith. This is just mechanistic. We're, 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 you know, we have no accountability. We're, we, we can fault God and say, you made me this way. Paul says, no, you can't. That's not the way it works. Verse 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? For will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way or why have you made me thus? Verse 21, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and the other for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So what is it that that Paul is driving at here? He's telling us that God's sovereign purposes in election include making himself known by his holy perfections of long-suffering justice and compassionate mercy. How do we know about God? God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. In the various ways that Paul has already been uh, pressing in uh, the opening chapters, Going up to uh, this chapter in chapter 9 of Romans, he says, God has made himself known. He's made himself known by his long-suffering justice and by his compassionate mercy. Therefore, the doctrine of divine election is not to be confused by human reason as impersonal fatalism. Well, there's nothing we can do, you know. Uh, It's really God's fault. We can blame God. He made us this way. Or with a mechanical type of determinism, where you know we're humans are just robots, we're just machines. That's not the view of Scripture. It's also, as we learned earlier, what God witnesses uh, in the human heart and conscience. And so, the war against God, as Scripture tells us about it over and over, is because God has made it known and revealed who He is. He has brought before us his holy perfections of long-suffering justice and of his compassionate mercy. So there's no excuse. You can't uh, get away with trying to um, mischaracterize the doctrine of divine election as impersonal fatalism or mechanical determinism. Now, those philosophical terms, of course, are of later use, but Paul is addressing the, the seed of that thought and that idea in terms of human reason. The next section of key verses, verses 30 through 33 in chapter 9, bring us to uh, the conclusion of chapter 9 and getting ready to go on into chapter 10. So Paul writes, verse 30, What shall we say then that Gentiles, people outside of the Old Covenant, uh, um, uh, uh, people, nation of God, the, the, the Jews, the, the Israelites, the Old Covenant people, what shall we say then that Gentiles 
who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And Paul here uses prophetic uh, reference and imagery and even quotes from the Old Testament. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Remember what Paul said about shame? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the rock of offense. How is it that Jesus is a rock of offense and a stumbling stone? Well, God's sovereign purposes in election are complemented by his design of salvation, by faith righteousness and not law works for Jews and Gentiles. That's the point he's making. He keeps driving it home. He keeps bringing it up again. Revealed by scriptural fulfillment in the new covenant gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who is a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to human law good works for self-righteousness. That's where Paul is going with this. That's why the gospel is offensive. That's why Jesus, the anointed Savior, the one who came and fulfilled the law and kept the law in its exhaustive and and, um, comprehensive meaning. That's why there is an offense. Because there's only one way of salvation for Jews and for Gentiles that God has revealed and made known according to His sovereign purposes and election. It complements the design of salvation. Salvation that is by faith righteousness and not law works. Paul spent earlier time talking about the works of the law, whether from uh, outside of the Old Covenant in terms of the, the, uh, uh, God's uh, covenant of works and the consciousness that, that non-Jewish people had, the argument that he made, it, made for that, or to those who are within the Old Covenant nation and the, the covenant of the Old Testament, those covenants that revealed and made known God's way and plan of salvation for faith righteousness and not law works or good works. Paul's going to pick up with this in chapter 10 when he says that we are to be humble even as Gentiles who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and been included as the true Israel of God according to God's divine election and purpose. But there is to be humility and recognition that there is never under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, a righteousness that is satisfactory by human works. It's a very important point that he's making. And so that moves us then into chapter 10. And look at verse 4 of chapter 10. For Christ is the end, the comprehensive fulfillment. It's not that Christ has made the law obsolete. The end here is the goal. Christ is the goal. He is the comprehensive fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then look down at verses 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then verse 12 For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. So talking to us about what is the real Israel of God, what is the true Israel of God, 
Paul is arguing that there is only one way of salvation for Jew and for Greek or Gentile. To be of the true Israel of God is not by outward birth or circumstances or or by law works. That was never intended. And so here, saving faith for Jews and Gentiles identifies, acknowledges, and trusts in the person and work of Jesus Christ, both inwardly from the heart, the honest trusting, and outwardly by confession, identified content and doctrine. That the total righteousness of the law of God is comprehensively answered in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says, believing in the heart that God has raised him from the dead and confessing with the mouth, God's way of salvation. So inwardly and outwardly, as it were. Not by being a Jew or a Gentile. Not by one's relationship to uh, the moral law of God, either, either by the covenant of works or by the Old Covenant Testaments uh, that God revealed in the covenants of the Old Testament. No, it has to be and has always been by the in, inward regenerating power of the Holy Spirit of God to make the unjust just, to make those of us who are not right with God right with God. So it's a powerful, powerful point that the Apostle Paul is making. That saving faith for Jews and for Gentiles always has been identified, acknowledged, and a matter of trust in God's promised Messiah, His anointed one, who would be the Savior. This has to be inwardly within the heart. And then outwardly, it must be identified and by the content and doctrine and teaching that the scriptures reveal. That brings us into chapter 11, again in the same context of chapters 9 through 11. And beginning in verse 1, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Back to this question, did God fail in reference to his promises? Did God change his mind? Did God decide to go to a plan B or whatever ways it's been described? No, I say to you, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I, the Apostle Paul says, am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul brings himself forth as an example as one who was saved out of Judaism in that transition, acknowledging that Jesus indeed is the anointed Savior and to be part of the true Israel of God. Paul is saying he is no longer a Jew. He no longer practices Judaism. That has been done away with and finished And in that transition now, Paul identifies himself as a Christian, as a true Israelite, as one who is of the Israel of God. He is one of those Jews who believe of the first generation of those who confess the Lord Jesus as Christians. Look at verses 5 through 7. For so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Paul says, just like him, there are other who are others who were raised in Judaism, who were born into Judaism, that they are part of the secret election of God, of a remnant. Not the external Old Covenant or even the continuing claim of that Old Covenant nation. People who say that Israel today is the Israel of the Old Covenant are foolish. That's over and done with. Externally, that nation will never be prophetically 
uh, brought back in terms of God's saving purpose. There is a true Israel of God, and it's not the old covenant, Judaism. We don't hate or despise uh, uh, Judaism or Jewish people. The scriptures tell us that continuing practicing Judaism is an abomination because it says that Jesus isn't the true Savior. But Paul says, I have compassion, such compassion that I could wish myself accursed for my own kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul loved his own people, probably even people in his own family. And he longed for their salvation. But that salvation must come from Christ. And it must be according to God's secret and electing decree, not by any circumstances of bloodline or external birth privileges or external uh, privileges of old covenant practices. So we too should be heavy-hearted and long and desire that the remnant that continues, Paul says at his day there was continuing a remnant that God was going to save out of Judaism. And so that's what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 6. And if by grace then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. So once again, Paul's argument and point is that in terms of God's secret electing decree... It reaches to those throughout the world, either in terms of, of, of the covenant of works of those Gentiles and non-Jewish peoples of the world, and those who are within the external outward covenant of Judaism, but that God's true elect are called to confess that Christ is the person of the Lord Jesus. The anointed one is Jesus, and he alone is the Savior. And so Paul says there is a, a continuing remnant. So he tells us here that saving uh, that God's decree of election by grace is the only and always foundation for his personally and individually for knowing, predestining, and calling to saving faith, those being justified and glorified by union with Jesus Christ. I hope you pick that up from chapter 11, those key verses, but if you were to read the whole chapter here, God's decree of election by grace is the only and always foundation for his personally and individually foreknowing. Remember what we read back in chapter 8? Whom God foreknew. His predestinating and his calling to saving faith. Those being justified and glorified by union with Jesus Christ. And here, who does Paul say are examples? He says, I'm an example of this. He presents himself and his case in terms of his conversion. And then he also tells us that there is a remnant that will be elected out of Judaism. And that brings us then to uh, verse 11 and verse 22. Again, key verses in chapter 11. Look at verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not, but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. This is according to God's plan. Look at verse 22. Therefore consider the goodness and sincerity of therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness otherwise you also will be cut off. 
There's no guarantee of this external claim. And note what the Apostle Paul says here. Neither the outward privileges of the old covenant, neither the outward privileges of the old covenants under the Old Testament, nor the outward privileges of the new covenant are effectual for salvation without the inward transformation of the heart, exposing faith and obedience by a new covenant relationship to the moral law of God. That's the essence of the covenant of grace. Here in chapter 11, Paul's making the argument, you probably know the illustration of the olive tree, the the, cultivated olive tree and the wild olive tree. And that's the point that Paul is making by illustration that the cultivated olive tree was Old Covenant uh, Israel and Judaism and how God used that. And, and within that, there was a true remnant of believers. There, was, there were true believers in that Old Covenant. But then God, as the great husbandman, uh, cut out and pruned off the dead branches, unbelief. And he engrafted from the wild olive tree, the Gentiles, into that olive uh, cultivated olive tree. And he's saying to uh, those recognizing and confessing the new covenant who were not raised in Judaism, be humble. Don't pat yourself on the back. Don't think you're special. You're to be a demonstration and even to be a provocative uh, uh, representation to the Jewish people of God's salvation. That's the attitude you should have toward it. Not proud and arrogant and we're better than you and you missed it and you know you murdered Jesus and all that. And Paul's going to bring that up. But what should our response be? A longing response that all the elect be saved, wherever they come from. Do you have a longing response that God would save people out of Islam? I do. Out of that darkness, that God would bring his light of salvation, that God would save people out of that, out of all false religions, people around the world, people that are given to ancestor worship. People that are given to animus spirits and, and under the blindness and the, and the power and illusion of the devil, they worship creatures instead of the creator. All of that's still going on. The very things that Paul has told us about, bringing us up to this point, even to the highest level of those who received all the privileges and promises and types and covenants and the word of God and even the earthly birth of the Savior. A longing desire that all the elect would be saved from all peoples that God would call out and manifest to us that we might be a part and rejoice and by faith see that it's happening. That's what I'm saying to you from the Holy Scriptures that we see by faith that God is saving His people. And He says that there was even a remnant of that old covenant people. And so it's not by outward privileges of the Old Testament covenants or the outward privileges of the New Testament covenant because we've been baptized, because we partake of the Lord's Supper. Those things outwardly cannot save us. They testify to those who are of true faith of an inward work of the Holy Spirit, trusting Jesus and then confessing and accepting and acknowledging what baptism as given to us by the authority of Christ. What the Lord's Supper is given to us by the authority of Christ means. You know, this Lord's Supper means something with the words of institution telling us about who Jesus is and what he's done. But it's not this cup of uh, wine or juice or this piece of bread that will save you. It's these things represent the saving power of Jesus. Jesus. 
who is God. And that's the point that Apostle Paul is making. And then we come to verses uh, 25 through 26 that are often uh, contested verses. I think they're, they're just missed the point that the Apostle Paul is making. Look at verse 25 and 26 of chapter 11. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. And he quotes from Old Testament passages and makes application. But, but what does Paul say in verse 25? I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery of God, this mystery that Paul further has elaborated on. He says, I want you to know my knowledge in the mysteries of God. And this mystery of God is about God's gathering from the elect, His uh, salvation people, from Jews and Gentiles. Remember that the, the first Christians were those who were saved out of Judaism and acknowledged and identified in Jesus their true Messiah. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. God has broken down the wall and the partition. The Old Testament, uh, the walls of the temple have come down. There's a new temple of living worshipers. There's a new nation under a new king, the true Israel of God and the kingdom of God. That's the point that he's making. He says, we, we are not to be haughty. We're not to be proud. But rather we're to be humble and to know that this blindness that has happened in part, God is working this according to His secret counsel in terms of, of the fullness of the Gentiles. When God is saving people outside of Old Covenant Judaism, what is He also doing? Verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. Who, who is Israel? The true Israel of God. Now, very often, verse 26 is uh, applied in a time reference. In verse 26, and so at that time, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so at that time, then God will save all Israel. Um, and, there, and this has led many to uh, project and posit an idea that there will be a mass conversion of Jews just before Jesus returns. Uh, that's not, in my opinion, that is not what the scripture teaches. It doesn't follow up from all that Paul has been leading and teaching and bringing us to this point and identifying who the true Israel of God is. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. Who is the true Israel of God? And God is bringing together his elect, his people whom he's saving from around the world and across time. And so if you take verse 26, and I'm going to tell you something I think just simplifies and clarifies it all. That the adverb so in the Greek text in verse 6, if we were to translate that as an adverb of manner, which is a legitimate grammatical function for the adverb, an adverb of manner and not an adverb of time. And verse 26, to me, if you understand that as the manner in which all Israel is going to be saved, it removes all confusion. Because what does verse 26 say? And so in this way, all Israel will be saved. What way? The only one way by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not disputed among us, is it? There's only one way of salvation. And that's the point that Paul is making. That's how the true Israel of God is saved. He spent time saying, look, the true Israel of God is not the Judaism of the Old Testament. That's not the true Israel of God, not after the flesh, but those who are of the Spirit, the new and true Israel of God. And so they will all be saved in this manner. 
Jews and Gentiles who are of the elect of God will all be saved in the same manner. What is that manner? By the faithful preaching. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they're sent? Paul already said that back in chapter 10. So by the faithful preaching of the new covenant gospel, there is a simultaneous, at the same time, gathering of the called out ones. God is saving people all around the world. doesn't matter whether you and I see it or not. God's word says it's so. There is a simultaneous power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's reaching outwardly, inwardly to the hearts and minds of people. There are people who are believing with their hearts and confessing with their mouth. And God's Israel, the elect of God, are being saved simultaneously all around the world from all kinds of people. And that's the hope of the gospel. That's why Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying, that God's secret decree of election for faith salvation by grace guarantees that all of the true Israel of God will be saved by the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ. Well, that brings us to the conclusion of chapter 11, verses 28 through uh, 36, if you'll listen to those. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so... These also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you, they also may, be, may obtain mercy. For God is, has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So God has committed them all, all of the elect according to God's decree, even unsaved, even when they were unbelievers, but in the secret counsel of God, of God's elect. God has committed them all to disobedience. We all were born in sin. We all are guilty before God. There is no preference that any of us have or can claim in ourselves whether Jew or Gentile, but that he might have mercy on all the elect. We're all saved the same way. All are saved. Jews, Gentiles are all saved one and only way, and that is by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the doctrine of God's electing to faith salvation by the covenant of grace should promote humility. That's why Paul says back in verse 18, don't be proud, be humble. And it should promote worshipful praise, celebrating God's holy secrets. I want you not to be wise in your own opinion. I want you to know the mysteries of God being revealed by the new covenant gospel of Christ for unashamed proclamation of the glory of God's wisdom, knowledge, judgments, and ways. Unashamed proclamation. Did you note Paul repeats and uh, quoting from the Old Testament he, he emphasizes over and over again not being ashamed. Not being ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now you understand more what Paul is saying about that. It's not by uh, some kind of partiality. 
but rather in terms of privilege and in terms of uh, chronology, what God was doing and what God has revealed in his plan of salvation and his historical revelation to us. And he lets us into his secrets, even that secret of divine election that should not disturb us. It should not cause us to question God or, or to have hard thoughts about God. What it should do is humbly reassure us not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it'll be a couple of weeks before we return to Romans, but the last installment, part four of our survey of Romans, will come in chapters four through six. And as I told you before, I've intentionally presented these um, out of sequence, out of uh, uh, the chapter sequence, because I think chapters four through six get overshadowed by the heaviness of chapters one through three, and then they seem to be overlooked by the jumping back and forth tensions of chapter 7. We know how chapter 7 drives us to the glorious revolution, uh, resolution of chapter 8. But I don't want us to overlook chapters 4 through 6. They're so powerful. 4 through 6 tells us that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace because of original and actual sins, no one, Jew or Gentile, is able to or enabled, either by Old Testament rituals or by New Testament rituals. It's enabled by a righteous desire for God's moral law apart from the supernatural living unity with Christ. That's why chapters 4 through 6 are so powerful and important, and we need to appreciate and know them just as well as the other portions of um, the book of Romans. So uh, we'll return in a couple of weeks to that concluding section in chapters 4 through 6. Now I know and sorry that I've gone overtime this morning. Um, I hope you'll spend time